Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Check out the Hog Talk Podcast, the newest addition to the Hit That Line Podcast Network. Find it on hitthatline.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Hog Talk Podcast, part of the Believe and Hit That Line Podcast Network. With us on the line is the voice of the Arkansas Razorback, Chuck Barrett. A former guest of the show, Coach Mike Neighbors from the Arkansas women's basketball team. We have from ESPN's Around the Horn, highly questionable. Also a two-time Dan Levitard show Suey winner and the <laughs> former heptathlete at Cornell, Sarah Spain. And we are happy to be joined by Martrell Spate. Mr. Phil Elson, the voice of Razorback baseball and the Ladybacks. Razorback Nation, welcome into episode number 142 of the Hog Talk Podcast alongside Porter Hayes and Kevin Bohannon. My name is Kyle Sutherland, and we thank you, as always, for joining us. And if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen. We are there. And while you're there, if you could please be so kind, leave us a review. Help us get our name out there and reach more people. And guys, before we get into the show, I want to remind you that we are brought to you by Bet Online. While you may not be at the game this year, you can always get on the action at Bet Online from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props. Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And you can also get involved virtually through the online casino that never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Bet Online your online sportsbook experts. And guys, I know that Razorback Nation pretty much is going into work this week, or at least they're starting off Thanksgiving week with a lot of disappointment, a whole lot of negative nostalgia dating back all the way to 2009 in Florida when Mark, Mark Curls' name was made very popular in another negative way with Razorback fans. Every single time we see that he calls the game, it's kind of like Perry Costello with baseball. You start to cringe, you get a little worried. And for the most part, not that I can think of since Florida, we haven't had a whole lot of really bad cases to where it's gotten to the point where there were three plays that really changed the momentum of the game, like we saw against LSU. And, and Kevin, I'll start with you on that. Let's, let's break it down play by play just really quickly. So first off, you got the fumble. We'll start with that. Uh, what, what, what did you see on that? I kind of saw actually a little bit of a mixed bag, and I saw some Razorback fans actually defending LSU. Yeah, it looked like right away that while the runner was down, he had the ball and then it got stripped from him. So in that case, runner is down, maintains possession, that's LSU's ball. But the way it looked, we, we made sure, and Arkansas made sure that after the play, they got the ball and – if it went to replay, they knew that it would be in our hands. So the, the problem was, and the biggest thing that I saw throughout the day is, I think there were five reviews. Four of them went LSU's way. One of them went Arkansas's. And I will say this, the wheel route that they threw to the running back should have been a touchdown for LSU. That's not a catch in NFL. It is a catch in college. But the fact that the officials couldn't make the call the right way the first time, that's what's so disconcerting with me, having been an official and watch it. But, yeah, it, it looked like – and I will say from LSU standpoint, it, it could have gone their way, and it did that on that call. 
And how about the tripping front or well tripping? I put quotes around it. It seems to me that there's been maybe two tripping calls in the last 10, 15 years, maybe even longer than that. And both of them have been on Arkansas, of course, Dan Skipper and Texas A&M in 2014. And then the Traylon Smith one that made absolutely no sense. What did you see on that one? So the biggest thing in going back to Dan Skipper, he's six, nine. So when those limbs get outside your body, that's easy to call. But when you're on your back, most likely after you've hit a 240, 250-pound linebacker, your legs are going to be in the air. And that's where he went. The guy went over the top of him. That's why I was so befuddled while they called tripping because the backer went over the top. It's not like he went around or to the side, but on the replay, he goes right over the top, and that's when he hit Smith's leg. So that was the one that really caught my eye, and I was like, there's no way, guys. Porter, I'll get your thoughts on those as well. Kind of what the tripping call, and then ultimately what led up to uh, one of the with the bad ones where Catalan should not have been tossed. Yeah, <clears throat> I've looked at the Catalan play over and over and over, and what what it's going to lead to, and and we've seen this, and you wonder about like the missed tackles in, in football, and it's going to lead to a lot of these guys are going to be scared of getting kicked out of the game, and they're going to come in high, and they're going to kind of duck and the guy's going to keep on running and score a touchdown or get a first down. I mean, that there's no way no the offensive player and the defensive player Catalan did not lean with their helmet. He led with his shoulder and even tucked in and moved his helmet away. I mean, you could see him turn away and he hit shoulder to shoulder contact. So what what's going on is that and we see this even with the Drew Brees, you know, incident. You know, if it's such a hard hit they're more than likely going to throw a flag. So, and, and we're okay with throwing the flag, but when you're reviewing it and you got somebody in the booth, so it's, and that's another thing. Everybody can be mad at, at the guy throwing the, the play on what was the, the referee's name? What was his name? The Mark one that Curls. everybody's mad at. Yeah. Curls. Okay. So a lot of people could be mad at curls on that, but you got to think this is being reviewed up in the booth and they're relaying, down on the field what the call is so actually it's on them for upholding what they did same thing with the fumble you know from what i seen on the fumble the ball clearly comes out and he immediately jumped in and both players went down for it so it wasn't like this was a pile on scrum where you know the refs are happening to get everybody piled off and then arkansas is coming out with the ball I mean, he clearly had the ball in possession and come up with it and handed it to the ref, and they still said, oh, well, I mean, so to me, it's kind of like you said, Cabo. We need some definitive rules on what the hell is actually, you know, he didn't get complete possession or there wasn't a clear recovery of the ball. I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, what is the player going to have to do? Grab the ball and lay on the ground and, and, and sit there and hold on to it? That's the the most confusing part of that. Now I didn't see the tripping call, so I can't really you know comment on that. I I was in and out of work, so I was trying to listen and watch when I could. But you know I did see the the Catalan hit and the fumble, and both of those are just baffling. It's like you know referees and Cabo, you you can you contest to this. You know they are there, and if a game gets out of hand, you know they can kind of step in and take control of the game. And you know they were just bad all around i mean lsu side and arkansas side and these are you know these are seasoned sec refs and it's just it's sad to see because arkansas always seems to get these bad breaks and 
it's disheartening. And, and Kevin, I want to ask you from an official standpoint. Now, this season especially, it seems – I know that it's very common for fans from various bases to always complain depending on how games went for their team every single year. But this year it just seems to be particularly bad in the SEC. I, I point out the SEC because that's what we pay attention to the most. Arkansas had some bad calls. There's a lot of teams that have – and it seems like that any time, especially with the whole Arkansas-Auburn game situation, really all that happened there was a statement made. And we see a lot of statements made here and there when there's a very serious call, maybe a suspension every now and again. But it doesn't seem to really ever get fixed. Maybe I'm just seeing it from that standpoint. But do you, do you see anything really being evaluated after the season is over looking in to all the awful calls they have had against so many of the 14 SEC teams this season? They're going to have to, and a good friend of mine who is a really big Georgia fan said yesterday, he said, I would have never thought I would say that SEC officials are worse than Pac-12 officials. And that, that, that was a statement, but they, they looked at the fumble recovery at, after the Auburn game and said, okay, they made a small adjustment to the replay afterwards, and, but it was a week after the fact. They're going to have to do a complete overhaul on this. They're going to have to make definitive answers in statements like Porter said. There's going to have to be clear, concise, specific language. Because if you look at the targeting rule, when in doubt, throw a flag. And then we can sort it out later. It shouldn't be like that because you're dealing with a young man's future and a young man's money at that point. And I say that because as of right now, Jalen Catalan is going to miss the first week of the Missouri game next week. And this is a a young man who's up for freshman All-American honors this year, and that's film that he will not have on him. So that's affecting his money and his future. That's the way I kind of look at it, and maybe not a lot of people can see it like that, but that's how I see it unfolding is you're messing with these kids' livelihood when you're just saying, when in doubt, and then we can sort it out. Yeah, and to add on to that, you know, it it goes back to my previous point. You know, if, you know, he's up for freshman All-American, now he's got two, this is his second one. So, if if it causes him to be a little bit more timid and and standoffish and playing his defense, it could affect the way he plays the rest of the season. And and what I wanted to ask you, Cabo, was, you know, how do these guys, from an officiating standpoint, so they, they call the game, and so what is the grading point? How do they get evaluated each game? Because I know I used to talk with one ref, and he said that they would do a game and then they would get evaluated and off every game. So what is that process like? And and Because it seems like there's nothing done about it, but yet do they still get evaluated every game? Yeah, they're, they're ha- they have to because they have – and I hate to say this because they have a standard to uphold, and I can't say that without laughing right now, just because of the level of ineptitude that I've seen this season. So, yes, they do have a rubric. They do have a grading scale where they go play by play. Okay, this is what happened, and this is what should have happened on this play, or everything checks off on this play, whether it's positioning, and that's a big thing that I saw the other day on the Hudson Henry when they signaled touchdown. The guy was blocked out to where he couldn't see. So if he was in position to where he could have seen on the goal line where the ball did not break, it's small things like that that people may not see because they haven't been in that position. But it's, it's things like that that they go through line by line, position, call, was it the right one, what we could have done. And you talk about games getting out of hand, and that's where preventive officiating comes into play. You talk to your lineman before, beforehand, okay, hey, you're kind of getting outside the, the shoulder pads there. Make sure you don't do that. 
So a little bit of that goes a long way in, in having continuity and making a game flow like it should. And I think they've just either they've just gotten lax on the the grading scale or there's a shortage of officials to where they can't get anybody that's better. And they're saying, Oh, we just got to go with what we got. And that's what scares me because we see it at the high school level as well. And a a high school game the other night, there were 11 unsportsmanlike conduct penalties in a high school game in Little Rock the other night. And that's sad because that some of that could have been prevented with some good preventive officiating, but there's such a shortage right now. If they can't get them to the SEC level, they just got to go with what they got. And that was especially demoralizing because you not only lose possibly your – I would say Jalen Catalan is probably your best defensive player. The only other one that you could argue on the entire season would probably be Jonathan Marshall. But either way, an extremely crucial piece, as we saw especially against A&M, as we saw against LSU after that penalty, that ejection, they ended up – LSU being – they scored and took the lead. And essentially that's really what – I'm not going to say that's what led to losing the game, but played a big part in it. And just to have that, and you also, like you said, Kevin, that he's not going to be available for the first half of Missouri. That's what, now six quarters this season. Now, look, I'm not going to say that they were completely wrong. I personally don't know. I know that's me keeping my fan hat on a little bit. I don't know that I would have kicked him out of A&M, but I think that one was a little bit debatable. This one just was not. And you also think about, which I was going to get into next, all of the defensive linemen that you had out. Only I think the only linebacker you had was that you didn't have was Deion Edwards in the secondary. I want to say it was Simeon Blair and Kari Johnson. So from in the secondary linebacker, you, you stayed pretty healthy. You basically were able to dodge the the COVID precautions that kept you out of the game. But defensive line was just devastated with guys. I believe it was a total of seven out, which was basically about sixty percent of their production. It was around those numbers. But I didn't think they did a horrible job. LSU just had a great game plan trying to run it up the middle, trying to hit us with the slants, trying to hit us with the, the fade routes or goes whatever, whatever you, you prefer to call them. Um, whatever, when um, Hudson Henry was beat on that touchdown, they tried to hit us over the top with that. But their main game plan was just to get three, four yards here or there, hit us in the trenches because they knew that we were going to be really thin on the defensive line. Definitely, and I'll give it to you know, you know, Enoch Jackson, Torian Carter. Those were the two guys that really stepped up and had to play a lot. Of course, Jonathan Marshall. He still has, and Coach Pittman said last week, young man made some money, and he continues to make money every week because he's going out there. He had the most quarterback hurries he's had in a game this year. He had two, and for a career, uh, I might add. So. But, yeah, they had a game plan. They knew we were short up front, so they were going to pound it up the middle. And with a young quarterback that's a freshman that had come into the game averaging about 67, 66 completion percentage, 204 yards per game, they were going to be short. They were going to be stop routes, slant routes, and then they can take a shot deep. That's all we saw. He doesn't have to make more than one read and go. So they found the soft spots of the zone, the the – Freshman Richardson, number two, the wide receiver, he did a really good job. They developed a rapport in the game. Of course, Terrence Marshall is one of the top receivers in the land. They did a really good job of finding the soft spots in the zone on those slant routes. We kind of made an adjustment as we thought we might second half, and it did a lot better. But being on the field for 41 minutes, it's going to wear anybody down. I think we might have had a better shot had we been at full strength. But when you take away six out of your eight defensive linemen, and you have to be on the field that long, it's, it's going to be a rough day, and it was. 
Yeah, and I think even if if Arkansas was full strength, you know, the game plan would have been the same for for Coach O because I mean we've been hard to you know defend the run all year, even full strength. So I mean they you you get that run. That's why it's so important for Arkansas to get the run game going because the, the, that opens up those zone you know the soft zone plays and the deep balls and you know if you're able to get your run game going, I mean then everything else is there. But yeah, they they made their halftime adjustments that. You know, we we know what what the issue is, and the offense just seems to just they can get some drives together, and then they just peter out. You know, so I don't I don't know what's going on there, um, but yeah, definitely the game plan they are ready for us, and you know, a lot of people thought that with everything going on internally that they would kind of you know sleepwalk through this game or they'd cashed out, and I I think this was a this was a quiet statement win for that program down in the LSU. Well, and a it's been very criticized Kendall Bryles' play calling, whether they, they didn't really do enough in the run game, which to me, it just completely got shut down. I guess you kind of alluded to Porter and basically they wanted us to take more shots. I, I said that I wanted us to take more shots towards the beginning of the game, but I do understand why Bryles was trying to do some of the things that he did. I'm not defending him. I do really disagree with some of the things that he was doing. Just like I've said, I disagree with some of the things that he's done previously this season, but when the deep, they knew the position that the defense was in. When you're out that many defensive linemen, as we just discussed, you're trying to. I would imagine that they were trying to do some things to slow the tempo down. That's one of the negatives about Bryles's offense is that it is meant to go up tempo, and that was some of the, the knocks on it that I read from some reporters from Two Four Seven. I believe I can think the other one's from CBS when he came in. That was one of the cons of his offense is that sometimes it is tough whenever you need to slow the game down a little bit and you're not trying to get a playoff every 15 to 20 seconds or whatever his average is and so I think I, I do understand what he was trying to do it just seemed like that they might have tried to take a few shots with the way that Mike that Mike Woods has played over the last two games with Traylon Burks being a guy that can go up and get a 50-50 ball I do believe that they should have taken more shots, but overall, I just think that it was a lot of stuff that didn't work out. And Porter, as you said, they, they knew our game plan. Here's the problem that we had yesterday as well. Rakeem Boyd, as banged up as he's been this year, he was always good. If he gets stuck at the line, he could fall forward a yard or two. Traylon Smith is not that guy. He's 189 pounds on a good day, and he's, he's a shifty guy. He's a guy that you get in space, and he can make guys miss. We didn't have that back that could go up and stick it up in there and get that yard. It frustrated me to no end at the end of the game. Franks makes a good scramble second and one. Our next two plays are going east and west, but they've been staples of the offense. Blake Kern didn't get his head around in time, and Franks couldn't get him the ball, but that just took away our option because Dominique Johnson was out as well. You didn't have a 200, 215-pound back that could stick it up in there. And when we only have five, maybe six protectors back there, if you have the H back and they're stacking the box with six or seven, you got to do quick passes like we did on the slants with Mike Wood. But we did not have the ability to run it for one or two yards. And it showed yesterday and it led to a 0 for 10 on third down. Yeah, that's a huge stat. I mean, going 0 for 10, I mean, that's just – you're going 0 for 10 on third downs, and we're talking about the time of possession, and, you know, your defense is depleted. I mean, you, you get half of those. I mean, even a third of those. That really helps your defense out. Keeping That's what, you know, was helping out LSU. I mean, I think at one point they were, what, 9 for 14 or 9 for 16 at one point on third downs. I mean, they were just 
killing Arkansas on third downs in the first half. And that just really gets the defense depleted mentally and physically when they're having to sit there and deal with, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 play drives. And it was as inexperienced as the defensive was and to sit there and have to go out and play as much. I mean, y'all said 41 minutes, you know, I mean, that's a long time to be out there playing and the offense needs to get, and I'm surprised that, you know, I didn't really notice that they were getting any tight end action going there. It's either the Burks chunk plays or we're running zone reads. So I think a lot of it is, you know, get some of these tight ends in the middle of the field, at least to get you three, four yards. If, you know, you know, you got Boyd out, he's your big back. You use that tight end and advantage to maybe throw some inside routes, curl routes or in the middle, you know, get, get the people, the defense, concentrated on the middle of the field that way those chunk plays or those screen plays work and so now we go into probably the last why i think that just about everybody would agree this is probably the last winnable game of the year you thought that you felt really good going into lsu and then the covid numbers came out and then your confidence level went down just a little bit but this is one that they just really have to get um i think that um that there's going to be a lot of backlash. I don't particularly think it's warranted, but there's going to be a whole lot of backlash if you don't go into Columbia and get this one, especially only winning one game in the entire series since you've started it back in 2014. And Missouri's been a quiet, quietly three and three team. You, you, they were going in this season with new coach Elijah Drinkwitz thinking that it was going to be kind of like Arkansas. They were going to be at the East. Arkansas was going to be at the bottom of the West, but they didn't play for two weeks and they beat South Carolina 17 to 10 on Saturday. I'm not going to say this team is sneaky good, but Kevin, they're really sneaky. They are. And you're starting to see a little bit of the culture that Drinkwitz is bringing in there. And they've got some athletes. We, we saw earlier this year when they beat LSU that they can stretch the field a little bit. Uh, I believe is, is, if Roundtree's still back there, he, he's been a Razorback killer in the past, and he, he's definitely looking forward to it because he has traded our defense in the past. But, yeah, the, these guys are three and three. They were picked a, as low as seventh in, in a lot of polls in the SEC East. So they've really come out and played really kind of like Arkansas. They played above where they were expected to. So it's one of those battles that is, is this going to mean more for us or them? It's kind of like LSU – and as, as Preston was talking about on the pod the other night, LSU looks forward to Alabama. They're chasing Alabama. They're chasing Florida. Well, who's Missouri chasing? You know, it, Arkansas cannot just be the only one in both of these trophy rivalry games. So, uh, hopefully our guys come out. We get some guys back. We're able to get in this game healthy and get after it and come away from, you know, Columbia with a W next weekend. Yeah, and I think, you know, Missouri and Arkansas had two similar games yesterday. You know, Arkansas was going up against LSU with, with – they thought that their head wouldn't be in the game, their, their coaching, you know, staff gone. And now look at what happened at South Carolina and Muschamp getting fired. You know, they – you know, Missouri went into a game, you know, what is South Carolina dealing with? And the other team either could rise to the occasion or, or fold. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in South Carolina. And, and instead of what Arkansas done – and not really capitalizing and getting the win. I mean, Missouri did that. They, you know, so say what you want about Drinkowitz and say what you want about the Missouri. You know, we'll have our chance to to prove what we can do against them on Saturday. But you know, they took advantage of the the situation that was put in front of them. 
Well, and something too is, you know, Elijah Drinkwitz, he's a, he's definitely, I don't want to say he's quite a cocky guy. I guess you could maybe put him at that level, but he's extremely confident. And, you know, there's a lot of Razorback fans that have, have dogged him just basically getting the Mizzou job because he had only been on, he had basically benefited from Scott Satterfield's players at Appalachian State. Those, there's some things that were thrown out there. So, you know, that this one's definitely personal to him. And, as he said around National Signing Day, the recruiting battles. He definitely kind of pulled a Brett Bielema statement uh, talking about how basically we were trying to poach their recruits and we were getting them. Well, I'm sure that probably has something to do with the fact that Barry Odom is now on our staff and he had been recruiting them previously. But either way, I think this is definitely going to be one that's personal for him. I, I'm not at the level yet where I'm ready to say that this is a rivalry, but if Elijah Drinkwitz is indeed there for a while – I could see it maybe do, maybe possibly getting to that point if the Razorbacks do end up uh, get winning a couple of games in this. Because if you think about LSU, whenever that whole thing started, I'm not really even so sure how much Arkansas cared about them. Arkansas and LSU both weren't really that good. I know that in the mid to late 90s, Arkansas had, got a lot of those games or at least a couple, and then it started swaying LSU's ways. We got into the 2000s. But um, I've, I feel that if – we get this one, which I, I think that we should, and you at least keep it competitive with Alabama. We're going to go into the offseason feeling really, really good. No, yeah, you got to win this one. You you got to win this one because I mean, even if you get blown out by Alabama, I don't think that's going to make any difference because that's going to be expected. I mean, Alabama is just that good, and you know, w- with the lack of defense, I mean, it's just is going to torch, you know, and that's expected. So I don't, even if Arkansas wins this one, say they win a close game and then they lose by 30 or 40 Alabama. I, I don't think the Alabama game is going to mean anything unless we lose the game. Now, if we lose to Missouri and then get blown out, I mean, that's what's going to leave that bad taste in the mouth. But I, I was thinking to myself before we started this pod and it was like, I'm glad that we get to do this pod on a Sunday, Sunday evening, where we can really reflect and not really, you know, because on Saturday afternoon, a Saturday evening, you're, you're hot, you're fired up, you're thinking about the missed calls. And, you know, we get to step back and be like, man, this team's won three games when it, all of us before the season was one or two games. You know, they've exceeded expectations. They've come out and, you know, they've competed. All we wanted was for them to compete. I mean – they had half their defense out, 75% of their defense out, and it only lost by three points. And I don't care what LSU had. I mean, they were getting – you forget, you're getting beat by San Jose State. You're getting beat by Western Kentucky. I mean, you're winning close games to Coastal Carolina. Now you're competing in the SEC. So they have far exceeded our expectations. And I think times when, when you start winning some games and then you drop one, you're like, oh, well, here we go again step back and enjoy what's going on with this season because I'm telling you in the next two, three years, this team's going to be special. Yeah. Our, all, every time. And I talked to a lot of fans yesterday, our expectations are changed throughout the year, but here's the way I looked at it yesterday. I know we had a lot of our first team guys in the yesterday, but so did LSU. They got their left tackle back. Who's one of the best in the land. They have one of the best defensive backs in, in Stingley back there. He's going to make a lot of money on Sundays. So you had pretty even teams. And when was the last time we could really say that about Arkansas and LSU? It's been a while, like Kyle just alluded to. But going back to Missouri for just a sec, rivalries are built in the recruiting battles. You see that a lot. Auburn, Alabama, yeah, they're the same state. I get that. But they're always going after the same guys. 
So it's not just the game itself. It's the lead up to the game that takes place on the recruiting field and being in the homes and getting after it like that. So I think Drinkwitz built that up a little bit. And of course, having Odom has helped and because it's about relationships and where the footprint is for our state and Missouri, you're going to build relationships with the same guys, especially when you have to go out of state to Texas, Oklahoma, get those guys, you're going to be going up against the same one. So, you know, kudos for us holding our back against that one right there. Uh, but it, I think it'll be a lot of fun, and hopefully it develops into a little bit more of a, a heated rivalry. And before we head into our next segment where uh, Kevin's going to be breaking – Kevin's going to be breaking down the 2021 uh, Razorback baseball signees. We were holding off on that uh, from – I know if you guys remember on signing day, we were tweeting out like when Jersey Wolfenberger signed and uh, some of the uh, the basketball signees for 2021. We wanted to hold off on baseball because Kevin was going to do his breakdown. I attempted uh, to pretend like I knew I was talking about. He did all of the work on that, was the complete brain. So that will be in our next segment. But before we get there, uh, I want to uh, give a shout-out to the Razorback soccer team. Uh, the girls got to the SEC championship game again. They fell to Vanderbilt 3-1. to one, But um, just – we Porter and I talked about it last week. But just what a great job uh, that Coach Hale and his staff have done to get to this point to be in contention every single year in a league that is – even in soccer, I mean, every every sport, it doesn't matter what it is. It seems like the SEC is extremely competitive and it is no different here. And so, uh, Porter, I'm going to give you the floor, give a little talk about that, but another incredible season for Coach Hale and his staff and team. Yeah, you know, the soccer team, man, It's they've only lost three regular season games in the last three years. I mean, they've went to the SEC championship game five times in a row. You know, and I know when you get to the game and, and you lose it, you know, it's disappointing. But, I mean, some fans just need to chill and just, you know, they're sitting there, well, he can never get it done. I mean, this dude built the program from the ground up. I mean, they, they weren't ranked. Now they're ranked in the top ten every year. And Potagil, you know, they got Potagil and Tankersley, all these girls, you know, McKeon, these people. I mean, they just – they caught a hot team in, in Vanderbilt. I mean, Vanderbilt was the seventh seed coming in. But – as I was telling y'all guys before this game, you know, Vanderbilt has lost four games this season, but they all lost three of them in overtime by one goal. So, I mean, I knew coming into this championship game, it was going to be, it was going to be a tough test, you know? And so the, the only thing that I could see watching the games is the, they, they were having problems guarding the cross. So when they would, if, if some people are not familiar with, you know, soccer, when you're bringing the ball down and you, kick the ball and you cross it over the midfield and you're trying to get somebody to score a goal. That was the biggest weakness that I had seen all tournament long because, you know, they jumped out to a four nothing lead to Auburn and they let them come back and it was four, three, but, you know, I do nothing but tip my hat to what coach Hale's done. You know, hopefully we can get him on the pod and talk about the season, but the season's not over. This was just a fall season. You know, they're, what, what they're doing is they're doing a fall slate, they done the SEC tournament. So, basically, if Arkansas would have won, you know, they would have got an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament in the spring. So, there's still a spring season to be played, and, and there's going to be more games, and then the NCAA tournament will be held in the spring, barring, you know, all this craziness. But, to, you know, to get there five years in a row, to be ranked in the top ten, and you've got all these, you know, freshmen. You had three girls in the, you know, all-tournament team, you know, 
So tip, I tip my hat to Vanderbilt. They played a great tournament. They they were red hot, and that's what happens in some of these tournaments. You know, the team gets hot and they they run, especially a game like soccer. It's such a low scoring game, and it was funny because that game started off the first five minutes and it was three goals. I mean, Arkansas scored in the first minute and then Vanderbilt got a penalty kick on the next possession and then added another goal and they got a goal in the second half. So, but yeah, guys, I mean, nothing but love for the the soccer team. And and I wanted to announce, you know, we got a special pod coming up either Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm going to be doing a preview of the women's basketball team and got a special guest lined up for that and, and talk about all the other things. I'll go in more depth about the soccer team and, of course, the track and field team. So there will not be a women's sports report this week. It's going to be on a special special pod Tuesday or Wednesday. Yep. so we'll have another. We had an extra one dropped last week um, with Aaron Torres from Fox Sports, and then we will have another edition this week, of course, with uh, the women's basketball team starting their uh, season on – it is Wednesday at 11 a.m., Porter? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, 11 a.m. gets so are you. Yeah, and then the men start that night, so uh, November 25th, right before Thanksgiving. So uh, so exciting week. And, and, guys, speaking of Thanksgiving, if you are traveling, please be safe. Definitely uh, be safe with the whole COVID protocols, all that stuff. But we hope you have a great one with your family. And, again, stay tuned for the uh, 2021 Baseball Signee Report. We'll be back right after these messages. The Hawk Talk Podcast is brought to you by Heinemann Services. Heinemann Services is a family-owned and operated business whose work ethic and customer service will restore your confidence in handyman. They offer interior and exterior projects for your home or business, including repairs, installations, small remodels, landscaping, decks, fencing, and much more. Call Corey and his crew today at 479-347-9336. That's 479-347-9336. Located in Fayetteville, Rapology is your top spot for banners, signs, and wraps. From commercial fleet wraps, color changes, vinyl decals, and much more, they take care of you in a timely and professional manner. Call Rapology today at 479-368-6490. Again, that's 479-368-6490. We're back on episode number 141 of the Hog Talk podcast. Kyle Sutherland joined by Kevin Bohannon, our baseball guru. Kevin, I know that this is uh, – you like to talk all sports just like all of us, but I know that this is your bread and butter as we get closer – I guess somewhat closer to baseball. I like to say that, but we're really, what, like three months away now. But we just finished up the 2020 recruiting signees. Last week, as you guys saw, if you follow us on our Facebook page or Twitter, we were posting who had signed from various sports from from all around that they had done for uh, the signing day. But we held off on baseball because we wanted to do a recap of a a group that was as high as number three for as far as perfect game is concerned and uh, number eight for Baseball America. 19 signees in total, five Arkansans. And so we're going to talk about uh, Kevin. I want to ask you about one of those Arkansans first off that I know a lot of people have been looking for answers to, and that's Austin Ledbetter from Bryant, great quarterback. Uh, was probably going to lead his team to a third consecutive state championship. Why didn't he get more looks at at quarterback? Uh, was it was it because he committed so early to the Razorback baseball team? And is it looking like that he? Well, I guess he will one hundred percent be playing baseball in college. There's no doubt, really now. Definitely, and a lot of a lot of schools they were turned off right away. 
just because he made that commitment to baseball so early. He saw the projection and even the MLB projection. You know, he's 6'1", 195. Coach Thompson, you know, when, when I interviewed him and talked to him about the class, he just said the leadership tools are there, he, the moxie that you have with a lot of high school quarterbacks that are in the situation that Austin is in. But Austin's going to be a pitcher for the Arkansas Razorbacks. That is what his future holds right now. And I was talking to Coach Thompson about, you know, could football play an instance? It could play an instance with a couple of these guys, Braylon Bishop being another one, because he's still playing football for the Texarkana Razorbacks. But Austin is, you know, 100% going to be a pitcher for the Razorbacks. They might, you know, give him the option at some point if he wanted to be a two-way guy on the baseball field and play third base and hit. But Coach Thompson said this has to be a special circumstance for a kid to play at the highest level of baseball and football being in the SEC to play both sports. It just has to be the perfect fit, and they believe it'll be just baseball for Austin. And talk about the pitching with the pandemic, the way that there was only five rounds in the MLB draft. You're going to have a really, really loaded pitcher room, and there is a lot of talent there on paper. We didn't see – a lot of great things in fall ball, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But what is it going to look like in terms of this particular class coming in? Do you see many of them contributing pretty quick, pretty quickly, at least as we get into the 2021 season? The overriding consensus is these guys are physical. Talking to Coach Thompson, Coach Hobbs, they're all they have these guys and they're bringing them in that they're already men. And you talk about somebody like Hagen Smith, who's six three two oh five. He's ranked 113th by perfect game. But the Arkansas staff feels like this could be the kid that has the most upside of anybody as a pitcher nationally, not just for Arkansas, but nationally. He did have Tommy John surgery last year, but come springtime in March, it's going to be 16 months removed. This is a left-handed pitcher. He's going to be low 90s. He has a wipeout slider, and they think his upside is tremendous. And then you look at Vincent Trapani, the 6-1-2-15 righty, that's been up to 94. He's from Wisconsin. I saw him pitch this last October down in Fort Myers and the kid pounds the zone at 91 to 93 and has been upwards of 94, like I mentioned. And then you got a couple other guys in here like Ledbetter we talked about, uh, Dylan Carter, the Juco, the only Juco signing in this class who's 6'2", 6'3", was a catcher in high school at Bentonville West, went to Crowder, He's going into his second year. He was up to 94 miles per hour this last summer. Very good slider. Changeup is developing. But he's somebody that is durable. He can come in right away, be a starter for the Razorbacks. So you you see this common theme among the pitchers that they're 6'2", 6'3". They're well-built. They're put together. They're athletic. They're recruiting a lot of athletes these days. They're two-sport athletes. They're very athletic on the mound. They have good feet, hands, hand-eye coordination. So they're they're they have a repeatable delivery. That's one big thing if you're going to throw strikes in the SEC, not just throw hard, but you got to throw strikes as well. The current staff they have right now, you got 15 guys that are throwing 99 that are throwing 95 plus. But the biggest thing is, is they can improve their secondary pitches, their breaking balls, their change-ups. And it doesn't matter how hard you throw if you can't throw strikes. They had a lot of walks during the Fall World Series, but Coach Hobbs ringed them in pretty well. And then you could see in games five and six, the walk totals went down. But they, you get these guys coming in, they're, they're well put together. They already have the velo there. They're just fine-tuning a couple of things. 
And I know that all these guys coming in are going to be at least 18 years of age, but at least in terms of being a freshman and coming in and straight out of high school, do you see any of these guys, whether it be in the infield, outfield, wherever, coming in and show, showing out pretty quickly like Robert Moore did? Drew Gray. Drew Gray is the 36th-ranked prospect uh, by perfect game nationally. He's a true two-way guy. He's 91 to 93 from the left side on the mound. He's got a tough arm slot that's about three-quarters, so he generates a lot of arm side run and sink on this fastball. And then he's a left-handed hitter as well. He's a 6'5", 6'6", runner in the outfield, can play the corner outfield, and he's put together. He's 6'3", 195, really good athlete. Braylon Bishop, who we've talked a lot about, uh, he's got a lot of accolades. People have been following him. He was ranked in the top five for a while by perfect game. He's dropped to 40th. That could be because he's playing football or didn't travel as much because of COVID. But the tools are there. Coach Thompson thinks he could be a true five-tool guy and hit for high average took along with his other tools if he just concentrate on baseball. Uh, but those two really stick out. They, they, he really grouped these guys together. You got Peyton Stovall, who's a shortstop out of Louisiana, uh, Max Muncy, shortstop out of California, and then Kendall Diggs, who plays third base out of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas in Kansas City. You got really athletic shortstops that they bring in like they did this past year but can play everywhere on the field. And that's how they bring these guys in. They're not just stuck in one position. Now, if you have a left-handed first baseman like they do with Jordan Byers, who's 6'4", 215, he's going to stay at first base, but he's athletic enough that he can play a corner outfield spot. But I, I compare Jordan to Chad Spanberger. He's got that left-handed power stroke that's just getting better. And these kids work hard. And the thing about Jordan, he should be a 2022 signee. He's really young for the class. He's going to be 17 when he graduates. But those are just the top few right there that I think could contribute when they step on campus. Just from what you've seen, I know you've seen just about all these kids play. Would you say from your perspective that it is more close to the perfect game rating of number three or number eight? How would you rank them from Baseball America? I would put them more towards the Baseball America ranking just because there's so many good baseball players out there in these other classes. If you look at the LSU, the Vanderbilt, Florida, Tennessee, um, the guys that have always recruited well in the SEC are still up there, and they're getting top 40, top 50 players. They have eight or nine of them. Arkansas has got four top 100, and then they have 11 top 200. So there is some depth there, but I don't think they have the really high-end guys that they could lose that – they could lose to the draft like they did this past year with uh, Tink Hintz, uh, Calabrese out of Canada, and then the shortstop out of Texas. Name forgets, uh, escapes me right now. But I don't think they'll lose as many to the draft this year. So I would, I would put them in that seven to nine range. It'd be more like it. And I wanted to ask you too, I was looking at this report that you had made for us and I only see two from Missouri and are either one of those from the Kansas city area. Cause I know that that's a really heavy recruited area for Van Horn and his staff. Yeah. Uh, from Olay, Kansas, Kendall Diggs goes okay. to St. Thomas Aquinas in, in Kansas city. That's always really been a hotbed. Of course, Isaac Campbell was, you know, out of there making his way up through double A and hopefully he'll be in the bigs soon enough, but they have all, they all played for the Royal scout team who, Robert Moore played for they've always had a really good travel program on the national scene and they got 
they've they've sent kids all over the nation. They had uh, Keegan Allen, Peyton Allen, the Bentonville Twins. One of them's going to Oklahoma. Another one's going to Kansas. Brock Moore, who's going to OU. Shea McGahan is going to Missouri. Just a few of the names that have come off of that team in the past few years. But, yeah, they, they, they did really well up there. That's always a stop for them. And Coach Thompson today, I, I was kind of joking around with him. I was like, I, I know y'all are recruiting nationally and you're getting kids from all over the nation. What is the pipeline from Wisconsin up north down here? Because it seems like you get one or two kids out of there every year. And he was like, well, these, these kids that are high-level baseball players and want to play in the best league available, we're really their first stop. And he said, yeah, I know Columbia is in Missouri and they're north of us, but – and I, and I told him, I, I kind of interrupted him. I said, well, Arkansas is at a higher level right now. And he said, you said it. So that's, that's kind of where all these kids are coming from up north. They want to come down south to play. Arkansas is really a, a northern school to them, you know, as far as being in the south. So that's how they get a lot of these kids from the Midwest and the, the upper Midwest to come down here and, and play in Fayetteville. Yeah, and like you said, this was number three. Uh, we'll, we'll use the perfect game rating just because that's the highest one that we received. And, and as, as they always do, they're recruiting really well in 2022, 2023. And Kevin, I think that just about covers it here, unless you've got any other notes. I noticed here that uh, Max Salee's a catcher out of Alabama. I was wondering if they were going to bring any more catchers in. It seems like they've with, – with the grad transfers that they had initially brought in before the whole draft situation happened because of the pandemic, um, you were already had quite had, – some uh, fresh ones fr coming in and then also those guys from the grad transfer. So uh, I was, I was kind of surprised to see that they did take one. Yeah. And they're, they're usually going to take one every class and Solis was the one for this class and he's going to be a fun one to watch. He's six, five, two He's a weight room freak. And his nickname is boom. And you, you can find him on Twitter. It's really funny to kind of follow him because he hits some towering home runs. He's a right-handed hitter. He's a lot of fun to watch, but they're going to give him every opportunity to catch at Fayetteville. And they kind of see him and project him kind of like Matt Wieters, Adley Rutschman, that big 6'4", 6'5", 240, very durable back there. He's not 5'11", 6'185", 190. So he's going to be very durable when he comes in. Of course, Dylan Leach, who was a 2021 and reclassified, has a really good chance to be the backup catcher to Casey Opitz this year. They really fell in love with Dylan Leach when he got on campus. He was throwing guys out left and right before he had a little arm injury. So it's going to be a lot of fun to see how these stack up the next couple of years. But they, like I said at the beginning of the pod, they just keep reloading and they'll bring them in from everywhere. Mac, uh, Max is out of uh, Bob Jones High School in Alabama, and he, he's going to be one that's going to be on a lot of draft boards come June. Yeah, it, it really does sound like that uh, we have got – quite a few players that they live up to the hype that there could be uh, some more like the 2018 offense that we had just home run after home run after home run. We could see something possibly similar to that. Once this all gets clicking. Definitely. They said they coach Van Horn said in his interview with the media a couple weeks ago that they hit more home runs this fall than they have in the previous two years. And that's with losing Martin and Kerstad. And of course we saw the head Fletcher a couple years ago. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch and they, they just keep getting those power hitters in to where they'll have one through nine, they have a chance to hit anywhere from eight to 15 home runs a year, depending on if somebody gets on a hot streak. So they're, they're going to be hitting the long ball up in Fayetteville for years to come. Well, and guys, make sure that you uh, stay tuned as we will have baseball content here and there as we get closer to the season. Again, it is, I, I act like it's just 
a month away or so. We are about three months out from the time that we're recording this, but um, as always, really looking forward to that. Always, and hopefully by that time, we'll be able to get uh, some more people into Bomb Walker Stadium. We'll have this thing under control a little bit more. But um, again, please be sure to make sure that, that, you, that you do tune into this. We'll have complete coverage during the season too. So um, really appreciate Kevin's point of view on that. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.